Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Served by SHFM, your food service hospitality podcast. The Society for Hospitality and Food Service Management is a community of like-minded professionals seeking educational, developmental, and networking opportunities to enrich their personal and professional goals. Hello, and welcome back to Served by SHFM, your hospitality food service podcast. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how to change the narrative around Africa, specifically how it relates to the way we eat, the foods we love today, and the stories behind some of our favorite ingredients. Uh, I am honestly thrilled uh, to, to introduce our guest today. She's an expert on African agriculture and nutrition, philanthropy, and social innovation. She has over 25 years of international development experience and is recognized as a serial entrepreneur, author, public speaker, and consultant. Um, so honestly, welcome to the show, Ndidi Nueli. And as one of the most traveled people I've met, and that's saying something, where are you joining us from today? Hi, Michael. Great to be on the show. I'm in Lagos, Nigeria. <laughs> that's fantastic. And I know you had to step away from another meeting, so we are really honored that you can make time today to to talk with us a little bit. Um, and also, you know, you're you're one of the guests that we have that has another one of those fascinating backgrounds that led you uh, to a very interesting career path. And we always love to explore that on the show because in, in food service and hospitality, really the sky's the limit for the direction you can take. So do you mind if we spend a few minutes before we really jump into this interesting topic and explore some of your background, really even how you grew up? You you had both sides of your family come from very different backgrounds, right? Yes, I did. Michael, my mom is from New York and my dad is from Eastern Nigeria and Ambra State in particular. <laughs> and they met at college at Cornell University in the 60s. Uh, white American Jewish and Igbo man from Nigeria, and they fell in love, <laughs> and they've been married fifty-four years. So, wow, that, magic that, happens. <laughs> yeah, I have to assume, you know that that probably led to a unique perspective, or you know the experiences that you had growing up. What, can you tell me about those? Definitely, it was a melding of two cultures and the best of both worlds because, you know, we really learned about um, our heritage as Africans, as Nigerians and as Igbos. Uh, we had tremendous pride in the fact that we're born and raised here. Mm -hmm. And we also had the benefit of having access to the United States, our family there, and also education in the United States for our higher degrees. So it was actually wonderful. Everything from Christmas uh, money uh, from our grandmother here in Nigeria <laughs> to Hanukkah money from our grandmother in uh, New York City. Oh, I love it. And did you travel a lot when you were younger? Did you, did you split time um, between countries, between locations, or how did that work? Well, I spent most of my childhood in Nigeria. Um, I only came to the U.S. actually once, maybe when I was six, and then uh, when I was 16 to start, uh, finish up high school and then start college. I got to go to other countries in the world. My mom is a historian, so she prided herself in teaching us about world history and taking us to different parts of the world. But we didn't come to the U.S. as often as my kids do okay. now. Yeah. All right. And and so when, I, I guess it kind of answers the question of when your connection and, and passion for telling the story of Africa, specifically around food, started. I assume, you know, was that something that, you know, you were born with, with your mother being a, a historian that was just kind of um, instilled in you at a young age? Or how did that start? 
Well, I loved agriculture from a young age. I had a little garden behind my house. Both of my parents are professors, so we lived on the university campus. Um, so I always loved growing things and, and was fascinated by how science melded with, with the world and with the earth. Um, but my passion for changing narratives actually started when I moved to the U.S. At 16, I came to the U.S. and came face to face with this new reality that most people thought about Africa and thought about hunger. And this contradicted my childhood. I grew up uh, you know, in a large compound with five mango trees, 20 guava trees, a huge garden. And so there was enough to eat and enough to share with our neighbors. And then I came to the U.S. Mm -hmm. and people would tell me, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from Nigeria. And they'll say, oh, my mom used to say, finish your dinner. They are starving children in Africa. Um, and so I had this, you know, intense of kind of sadness that this was the single story in the United States uh, about my continent and my region when, you know, we have some of the most fertile soil in the world, we grow almost everything we eat um, and we give a lot to the world. So that kind of fueled the passion within me to try to do something about it from an early age. And so you, you know, some of our other SHFM members, um, I believe, if I remember right, your, your husband went to school with Selena, right? Yes. So and, Selena, I went to Harvard Business School. I went there and my husband went there as well. So <laughs> that's right. And I'm, I'm trying yeah. to connect all of the dots. So when you say, you know, you ran into this skewed image of what life was really like um, when you were where you're growing up in Nigeria and Africa as a whole, you ran into this kind of public view. And, it, and maybe it was just in the U.S. or maybe was it was it wider that people just thought, you know, they're they're impoverished or they're they're struggling to eat. Was that everywhere? Or was that specific to you know your experiences stateside? So I think the United States and Europe in particular, um, this vision of Africa is is linked to a hungry child, um, mm -hmm. and the vision of poverty is linked to a female farmer from Africa. So I've seen this image in in many countries in Europe and obviously in many parts of the United States. Um, and yeah, it's 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 a sad one single story. I mean, there is poverty and there are pockets of poverty in Africa, but there are pockets of poverty in the United States as well. Um, so the danger of a single story is that it just gives you one slice of the world and doesn't allow you to see the full picture of the world that we engage in. And I think that's I mean, that's profound because it it's something we run into, but we rarely think about is when you're listening to any news story story or any type of broadcast or piece of information out there, it's hard to recognize that that is one particular person's maybe not just opinion, but gathering of information, their point of view on things, their uh, what they have access to. And yeah, I think largely we are really limited sometimes in, in what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And did you did you get that same vibe as you, you know, and, and I, I talked about Selena only because um, you know, you went to Harvard, you have a very expansive, in-depth education. There's so much that you've done. Did that point of view continue on? Did you see that more even in higher education as you continue to to live stateside? Yeah. So the interesting thing is, obviously, there, there are also pockets in America that are very well traveled. And so Harvard Business School has a very diverse population. You wouldn't see that kind of stereotypical approach because many people have been to Africa. Mm -hmm. um, but the sad reality, Michael, is my son just came for college himself 
uh, in the United States. And I asked him, what narrative would you like to change about Africa? And he said that we live in trees and huts. So he, wow. 30 years later, is still getting the same questions I got when I started the Wharton School for my first degree at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and so what, what really has propelled my mission and reinforced my drive is mm -hmm. that in 30 years, not much of that negative stereotype has evolved. Um, and we can't leave it to chance anymore. We have to actively inform people and change those narratives. And is that what got you into social entrepreneurship? Or how did you step into that from, because I think originally when we spoke, you know, you saw yourself as the more traditional CEO of, a, you know, Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 company. How did that change? What, what impacted that to drive you in a different direction? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. I'm one of these people who really likes to get instant gratification from the work I do. And <laughs> when I worked for one of the major consulting firms in the United States, probably the largest consulting firm in the world in strategy, um, mm -hmm. helping increase shareholder value. Um, and move the stock price through some of our interventions was not gratifying enough for me. Um, I needed to <laughs> see that I was, you know, changing, you know, Mrs. A's life or mm -hmm. Mrs. B's life. And so that really got me into social enterprise. And actually my in passion for social enterprise was born in the United States. Um, you know, there's a, a famous quote from John Whitehead who started the Center for Social Enterprise at Harvard. And it, he said, you know, you, you, you learn, you earn, and then you serve. And what we then believed is that we can learn and earn and serve at the same time. You don't have to wait till you're retired to start serving society. You can serve immediately. Um, so I decided to basically channel a lot of the great education and training I had gotten into changing people's lives, starting with entrepreneurship, helping young people start and scale businesses, helping young people become change leaders and social entrepreneurs through Leap Africa, which is now 20 years old this year. Um, and then since then has started a number of social enterprises in the food and agricultural landscape, not only to increase the productivity of farmers, improve the nutritional status of our people, but also to, to share information, data, and change mindsets. Wow. So obviously what you're doing has been impactful for, for 20 years now, 20 plus years. Um, is that also how you got into writing? Because you, you've written uh, at least two books. I know you've contributed to several more. How are they related? How is this? And and I have to take a step back for a second and point out to our listeners that your name means patience, right? Yes, and, it and yet it's, it sounds like in your career and in your passion, you are anything but uh, patient and waiting for results. How how does this all connect with your, your being an author um, and, yes. and what you've written on? I'm very impatient, Michael. In fact, I think I was aptly named patience as a virtue to remind me. <laughs> but the truth is, um, I decided to start writing because I also believe that many of the narratives are not being told because we don't write. We don't write our stories. Uh, we're often not considered um, to have a voice because we're not making our voices heard. And uh, so I, I would go to international conferences, Michael, and people who had been in my country for two weeks were experts on my country. And I was like, you know, sitting in the audience. I said, you know what? I'm going to start writing. So I wrote a book on social innovation and scaling because I realized that scaling was a challenge that I faced with many of the ventures I had started, but so many other people faced that same challenge. How do they reach millions? How do they have more impact on the lives of people? Uh, and what business models are, are more appropriate for scaling? How do they finance 
they're scaling? How do they attract talent to enable them to scale? So that was the book I wrote on social innovation. Then most recently, I wrote a book on food entrepreneurs and how food entrepreneurs can scale. Um, because I realized that, you know, in our ecosystem, there are so many great ideas, even in the United States, wonderful chefs, wonderful products, but they're niche. A lot of us are operating in niche circles, but we need to reach millions to really make an impact. And so this book on scaling um, for agri-food entrepreneurs um, really uses case studies, uh, very practical um, insights from the uh, marketplace to inspire and equip um, the readers to actually scale their ventures. Wow. I, it just came to mind. I was thinking of, um, we, we have a prominent member of our group that she's energetic, dynamic, and she started her own business called Z the Cook, uh, where she taught herself to cook. And she was one of our early um, uh, podcast guests. And I just, I, I might connect you to after this call because it just seems like one of those wonderful ways to a leverage SHFM, but also the wonderful guests that we have on here to, to make those connections. Because I think that's something that every small business owner across the world has to struggle with is how do I go from great concept to something that I can see to executable growth to exactly, to, exactly. And, and I don't, and, and even, you know, I, even the largest companies in the world, I think still struggle with this. How do you do it effectively? How do you do it responsibly and, and ensure that you're actually growing in uh, a healthy way? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And I'll be happy to connect with your guests um, yes. and to share the insights I've gotten from, from my own experiences, but also from interviewing over 80 entrepreneurs who have scaled. But I, I love it. And and I know I'm going a little off, but that's what I love about these conversations is that just being able to connect two people that are inspired and passionate about what they're doing. It's just fascinating to see what they can come up with as a team. Um, but let's, let's get back to it. You have, so you had very unique background growing up. You have all these wonderful experiences of being able to travel around the, around the world and getting educated by your mom, who's a historian. What, what was your dad? You said he was a My dad well. is a pharmacologist, yes. So he started okay. studies the science of medicine. So not related to food at all, but uh, still. still still, some aspects. Yes. So highly accomplished family, highly accomplished career. You pivoted from what we might see as a more traditional CEO growth path into social entrepreneurship, started writing to get your voice heard out there. But how did this, how does this all lead to your goal of, retelling the story of food in Africa. How, how do we connect those dots? What, what's coming up? So Michael, the amazing thing is for the last 20 years, I was in Africa, improving the productivity of farmers, scaling innovation, um, launching new ventures in partnerships with research institutions and the public sector. And I realized that so much of that great work was not being filtered up to the rest of the world. Um, that single story was stuck on the mm -hmm. face of Africa being a hungry child. And actually two summers ago, I was in Washington DC for the summer, um, going through grocery aisles, seeing some grocery stores with like six provinces from Italy and mm -hmm. not one single product on the shelf from any of the 54 countries in Africa. Um, I realized there was widespread ignorance about how African food uh, contributes to the world, how it's historically contributed, but how it currently contributes to our food ecosystem, and that it was critical to change that by not only telling positive stories, but getting our food on shelves um, and building bridges. 
between entrepreneurs in the food ecosystem on the continent with entrepreneurs in the rest of the world. And, and for the last one year, we've been doing that. And the more I learn, the more excited I become um, just about the interface. You know, Michael, one story that I love is the story about Okro. I don't know if you've heard that story yet, but Okro. No, please. Yeah, okra is a, a word that we've accepted all over the world. It's a vegetable, right? Mm-hmm. We eat it in New Orleans with as gumbo, but it's a very mm-hmm. healthy yeah. vegetable. Um, so I literally recently found out that okra is an Igbo word. Um, it was first found in the colony of Virginia's in, in the 1600s. And I happen to be Igbo. And so that's my language. That's my culture from a, a, an ethnic group in southeastern Nigeria. Um, and it was through the transatlantic slave trade that okra was introduced to the Americas. Um, so today the world enjoys okra as a product from eastern Nigeria. And that's why if you look at seafood okra and seafood okra from eastern Nigeria and gumbo from New Orleans, it's identical till this very day. Um, obviously, we use a few more hot pepper and spices, but it's identical. Yeah. Um, the same with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was made with cola nuts from West Africa. That's where the word cola comes from. Um, Pennington used it in his recipe. Um, and so when you think about it, every time you you have a, a product, a, a beverage that is a, a, has cola nuts in it, you are, have Africa to thank for it. Coffee was born in Ethiopia and 18 countries in Africa produce coffee. Um, most people don't know that coffee was born in Africa. When you ask the average American, they say Colombia or maybe the Middle East, um, but they don't know that the oldest coffee traditions are from Ethiopia. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. So as I learn more about value chains, um, I get more excited. Um, cashews, 57% of the world's cashews are from West Africa. Sesame, the same thing. Um, wow. We know about cocoa. 70% of the world's cocoa are from just two countries, Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. Um, and so that means every time you have a hot chocolate, every time you have a chocolate bar, you know you have a connection to Africa, whether you know it or not. Um, you're ingesting food grown on the African continent. And, and that should start changing the way you view the continent. Um, we're not just um, you know net recipients of aid. We're also contributors to very important value chains in the world. Um, and that gives me a sense of pride, but I also want to share that knowledge yeah. and joy with many people. Well, I mean, in looking this, looking at this kind of from an outside looking in perspective, you have what seems like an insurmountable task because everybody knows um, or everybody has their idea of a, maybe what Africa as a continent is, which is wrong. You know, we've we've established that a lot of people just are misled by some of the ads they grew up with, those types of things. Um, we don't know the story behind the ingredients that we love. We don't understand where they come from. You know, when you think of coffee, maybe you think, you know, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's a Colombian or that's something that because of the name of, you know, popular styles of beans or, or, or what have you. So looking at all of this and, and looking at kind of the uphill battle you have, where do you start? What is, how do you just get that first step going? So I think the first thing is the power of the media. Michael, you understand that more than most, right? The power of the media is critical. So we, we are producing content for the media. Um, not only podcasts, but also uh, docu-series, short films that that get into the mainstream media to start mm-hmm. changing those narratives, right? The second thing, and we're partnering with organizations all over the world to do that, 
Um, the second thing is we're actually getting our products on global shelves. And we've been very excited at some of the major global retailers that are excited about saying, you know what, I'm going to create a little African aisle. I'm going to create a section of my store devoted to having you know, high quality, well-packaged, nutritious food from the continent. Um, and so that there's a demand and supply aspects of it. Now I'm excited. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look for those brands and I'm going to go visit them. Um, I'm going to buy them. Um, because I, I realized that I, I want to diversify my what I purchase and what I consume. Um, but we're also partnering with other organizations that want to buy bulk and, and repackage because we feel like that's also an entry point. And then the one about convenings, we're connecting, we're have starting food festivals in all the major schools in the world because we believe that the young people um, are ready for uh, adventure. They're open to learning. Um, you can change your mindsets more easily when you're young than when you're older. Unfortunately, as we age, we know that's yes. true. Um, so we're partnering with a lot of the leading schools in the world to say, we're going to have food festivals. We're going to have celebrity chefs. We're going to have lots of debates and dialogues, but we're also going to taste. Um, and when we taste food from other parts of the world, you know, it just connects you in ways that, you know, it's, I think music and food are the ways mm -hmm. to people's hearts and they build bridges. <laughs> I mean, if food tastes good, you love it. You, it makes you happy. Um, the more you learn about the f history of that food, you know, it just connects you with people in ways you never imagined. And I, I, I admire what the Japanese have done with sushi. That's what has propelled me. In 20 years, sushi has gone from being a novelty, you know, food, you know, mm -hmm. raw fish to being mainstream. And that was systematic. It was very strategic and they've done a fantastic job. So we want to do that with jollof rice. Jollof rice is tasty. Why can't it be as popular as sushi? Um, okay. Now that there's a wheat shortage in the world with the Ukraine-Russia crisis, why can't Tef from Ethiopia, which is gluten-free, um, extremely healthy, be a substitute for wheat? Why can't cassava flour be a substitute for wheat? Um, and so this is a time where a lot of um, innovation from the continent is, is getting momentum, gaining momentum across the continent, but also on many shelves. And people who are health conscious are looking for alternatives. Um, and so we're excited um, to take take advantage of the gaps that exist in the market and to propel many of these brands. And we're doing it from a nonprofit perspective, just training, providing support, um, providing um, the entry strategies for many of these entrepreneurs and amplifying their voices. That's, I mean, I love the idea of the story behind food and the story behind ingredients and in that, you know, I know a lot of uh, sectors, higher education, for example, um, it's really important or, or growing in importance for uh, students and, and their other clients to understand how their food was sourced, uh, where it came from, you know, what the process was for creating it. There's a, there's a higher level of accountability, I believe, in our industry now than there ever has been in terms of understanding the story of food. And that's, I mean, that's a great connection to make between, um, you know, what's what's the history behind your ingredients that you're using in, in everyday products what is the um the story to tell behind how it came to be on your plate and and every step of the way and that's it's fascinating because you don't think about that day to day but if we can start to change that or you can start to impact that i i think the sky's the limit for maybe as you said changing the narrative and changing people's perspective on really where their ingredients come from but you know it looking at some of those things and what you've done and, and what you're planning to do what are a few things that you have to accomplish in this mission to say i did it you know i'm i'm happy with where we are obviously there's always room to move forward but you know what do you have to do to finally rest for at least a day 
<laughs> Michael, it's an uphill battle every single day. But I'll say a few things. One is, is that just for me, the recognition in mainstream media that we have contributed historically to the global food ecosystem and we are current contributors would be success for me. Um, beyond that, I would love to walk into any grocery store in America, any food service, and to see some African food products on the shelves or on the menus. Um, I would love to go to food courts, in huge food courts in many parts of America. In addition to seeing all the stands from the rest of the world, I'd love to see a West African food stand. Um, that would make me so happy. Um, I, I would love to see an infusion of West African food East African food and Southern African food into mainstream American diet, as we have seen with other countries like Thai, Thailand or India or even, um, mm -hmm. and we see Ethiopian food emerging to fill some of those gaps. And it's probably the closest we've gotten, but I think okay. we have so many more uh, food uh, entry points, Senegalese food, Ghanaian food, Nigerian food. And when it becomes mainstream, when your daughter says, I'd like to order Nigerian food for dinner, and you can look online and find a hundred Nigerian restaurants right there in New York City or wherever you live, that would give me so much joy. Uh, I love that idea. I, I mean, yes, it's, it's an uphill battle, but uh, what have you done, I think, so far to make the, the best first step in that direction? I mean, are you, you said you're working with grocery stores. How how are you doing that? Is it a one-by-one -one, um, so, process or? Yeah, so our first, um, our first initiative is called the Narrative Changer Food Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And we actually had an open call for applications, 400 entrepreneurs living on the continent of Africa applied. And we wow. selected eight entrepreneurs to start just a small pilot program, mm -hmm. um, five from Nigeria, uh, one from Ghana, one from Kenya, um, and one from South Africa. And what they, we've done over the last six months is expose them to all the great um, innovations in the U.S. context. Some of the fantastic entrepreneurs who have done really well, who to get there, who have broken through even in difficult value chains on in the U.S. context. The founder of Honest Tea was one of those uh, people uh, who spoke to them about his story. Very cool. Um, yeah, really great guy. And he gave us all his, um, his book, um, all the entrepreneurs, his book, which was um, an amazing book. Anyway, so we, we basically have helped them with traceability, with packaging, with meeting the regulatory guidelines, uh, FDA approval on all the requirements. And then on the uh, supply side, we've been getting in touch with different retailers that have branches all over the U.S. Um, they've been pitching. Mm -hmm. um, uh, their products, and some of them are going to be accepted. Some still have some ways to go. Um, so it's both a supply side, the traceability aspect you've talked about, ensuring that down to the farmer level, there's traceability that we meet the high quality standards, and then also pitching to the retailers that these entrepreneurs are ready and can meet their standards. And so we've been doing both, and we have a few success stories. Watch this space. It's not been easy. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 exciting. I know we can't mention names on the radio, but we've been very very um, impressed with the support we've received from the local um, retailers as well as the regional retailers, and also some digital platforms that do sell food. Um, and you know, we want to expand that. Another program we're doing through our partner Nourishing Africa is training five thousand entrepreneurs to export. 
Um, and from wow. that 5,000, maybe 100 will be ready, right? We we don't yeah. assume that it's going to be everybody who's ready. Not everybody's ready to scale. One order from a major U.S. retailer for 300 or 3,000 stores, if you're not ready to scale, you can't meet that order, right? You're going to yes. disappoint your customers the first time around. So we want to uh, manage growth and ensure that our entrepreneurs who come on board can deliver and can uh, be role models for others who mm -hmm. come after them. Yeah. I mean, they have to be prepared to be the success story exactly. versus the, yeah. Exactly. Well, do, you know, looking at it from our side, how do we as an industry, what's something, I guess, I don't want to say easy, but I want to say what's a good first uh, or initial way for us to, to support? How can we look at something like this and say, yeah, I can, I can jump in and participate or what, what, what could we do to help support an initiative like this? Well, the uh, wonderful thing for an industry such as yours is, you, you cater to both food service and also specialty. And mm -hmm. the amazing thing is that, you know, there's still a huge opportunity for private label and bulk purchases um, mm -hmm. as, a, as, e as an easier entry point for some of our entrepreneurs. So those of entrepreneurs in spices and mixed spices and single spices, dried spices are ready. Uh, I've mentioned value chains such as cashews and sesame, but they're also specialty products. Like there's something called Iru, which is great for gut health, which is a great product that chefs use. Um, it's a condiment, like a soya-based uh, condiment okay. that's really, really um, tasty, but so healthy as well. Food is medicine, as you know, and in Africa, mm -hmm. we really believe that. So there are lots of specialty products, but they're also mainstream products. And so I think an entry point would be private label. And through our nonprofit Nourishing Africa, we work with entrepreneurs in 37 countries. So if any of your members want any of these products, they can reach out to us and we can match make them. Uh, it's a free service. We're very happy to match make entrepreneurs on in your network who are interested in sourcing from Africa and they can tell us what they're looking for and we can match them with entrepreneurs who are ready to meet their needs. So that's one way. Another way is to, to get creative. I would love to see many of your members saying, how can I alter or adjust what I serve in my restaurants or in my kitchens. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you an example. Went to a major hotel in LA a few years ago. I was a keynote speaker for this Nigerian conference and there's a huge Nigerian diaspora in many parts of America, as you know. Um, we actually have probably one of the most educated and largest African diaspora in America. But what was interesting was that it was a Nigerian conference, 500 people at a major a hotel, and they were serving Spanish rice. So I went up to the, the events plan. I said, why would you serve Spanish rice instead of jello rice? Jello rice is really tasty. And she mm -hmm. said, oh, the chefs in this hotel said they wouldn't prepare it. And we can bring it outside catering. And I said, what would it take for the chefs in this hotel to learn how to make jollof rice? Doesn't take much. Um, and I'm wondering why they weren't willing to experiment. And if they did a good job, imagine how many new customers they would get over mm -hmm. time. So I think the opportunity to shift their, your mindset to say, I'm willing to experiment, willing to diversify, willing to try new uh, menus uh, from the continent. I'm committed to having diversity and offering that diversity. Um, it will open so many doors. It will gladden so many hearts. And it will also build the bridges that we desperately need to build. And I think from a culinary you know, standpoint, I'm shocked when chefs say they don't want to try something because chefs love to experiment. They love to pick up a new skill, a new recipe, a new way of thinking about food. And to be honest, it, it's one of the hardest things to do is to stay um, 
forward-facing, relevant, exciting, dynamic in your menus. And yet there's so many cuisines out there, like what you're talking about. So, so many rich cultures that have not really been built up enough or, or explored enough to, to make them mainstream, like you're trying to accomplish. And that I have to assume the receptivity would be pretty high in, in a lot of chefs today that say, are there skills that I can learn? Are there new menus I can try out? Are there cuisines that I haven't explored yet? Um, I mean, it, it just, it makes sense in, in such a profound way to get the word out there. How do you tell a story of food without serving the food? Exactly. I would love to see that lots of chefs embracing that opportunity to you know, spice up their menus and, and yeah. create an Africa day or a Nigeria day, a Senegalese day, a Ghanaian day. And we're happy to support them. Um, uh, there's so many of our partners who have great recipes and great links. Um, and so we're happy to, to partner in any way that we can. I love it. Let's, uh, let's try to connect some of those dots after this. Um, one, one thing that I want to end on is, you know, before we go into our fun question, if you could have one message that you want to leave with us today, one thing that you really want to resonate in our listeners' minds, what would that be? Only one. Can I give what? you two? <laughs> two is great. Two is better. Let's go with two. Um, so the first is you consume food from Africa every day, whether you know it or not. Um, and so you have to start changing your mindsets about what this amazing continent has to give the world and how much more there is to learn from the continent of Africa and its 54 amazing countries. And then the second message is, you know, take that first step to try new food from the continent. Um, it will not only make your life more exciting, but it will also broaden your horizons and enable you to build bridges with others. I think there's so much to learn when we get out of our comfort zones, step out and embrace change and embrace new knowledge and new insights. And there's a whole world out there, 54 amazing countries with diverse, healthy, exciting and uh, tasty cuisine. Um, and the world is missing out on it right now. So please step out of your comfort zone and do embrace the opportunity to look in your neighborhood and see if there's an Ethiopian restaurant, a Nigerian restaurant, a Ghanaian restaurant, and try out their food. You'll be truly pleased if you did. I love that it all comes back to how food brings us together. Food is, as much as it is nutrition and nourishment, it's also something for your soul, something for your life, something for um, your community to, to, to bring everyone around a common place and, and share thoughts. And that's a great way to do it is just talk about new ingredients, talk about new flavor profiles that you know, most of us haven't had the opportunity to explore. I mean, exactly. you know, my background is culinary and I think I've, I've probably seen and tasted more than most out there that, that don't have the same background and I'm still woefully ignorant of it. And yeah, I'd, I'd love to fix that. And I think after this, I'm going to find a way to. Um, so I, I love the message and I love what you're trying to do. And, you know, the the one fun thing that we are going to end on that we always do is, is a question about... Um, you and, and what you would say to yourself. So think about if you could reach back through time and and you had a couple of minutes just to talk to indeed starting out in her career, the 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 woman that doesn't have all of your experience now today that that hasn't seen what you have, what is one thing that you would say to her? Um what's one piece of advice you'd give? 
or two if you want to. <laughs> I was telling my daughter today that I'm not a role model when it comes to self-care and living a balanced life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I said, you know, I have a daughter who's a bit like me on speed. And so she's also very impatient <laughs> and wants to have like 26 hours in a day. And mm -hmm. I said to her, please learn. She's 15. I said, please learn to just take care of yourself and breathe. And so that's what I would tell myself. Pace yourself. You don't have to be in such a rush um, because, Michael, some of us don't want to do so much. We don't know how much time we have on this earth. And we every day is like... A, Alas, so I don't have regrets, mm -hmm. but I wish that I would. Um, I I knew how to have to rest a bit. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's what you expect. No, it's to hear. it's it's so, so true. <laughs> self care, self care, especially in our country, is something that, in a lot of ways, is looked down on. Where if you say I need to take a break or I need to stop and rest and I need to focus on myself for a little bit it's not ingrained in us to say, yeah, that's a great idea. I think we've been, it's been hammered into us for so long that that's a sign of, of weakness or a lack of drive. And it's not true. It's, it's yes. something that you're, you're better for it and you're more productive and you're more spirited and you have better energy. But yeah, I love that message. I think everybody in our viewership and our listeners need to know that it's okay to step back and, and take a minute to focus on yourself. So honestly, that's, that's some of the best advice I think we've got. Thank you. And please don't wait till you're my age to try to learn how to do it. Start earlier. <laughs> yeah, that's, I love it. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time and stepping away from meetings today to, to connect with us. And hopefully we can help spread your word a little bit. We'll, we will um, do everything that we can, put links out, um, posts, whatever we can to help support. But I think what you're doing is wonderful. And I just want to say thank you for stepping up today to talk to us more about where your passion lies. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Served by SHFM, your food service hospitality podcast. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed on today's episode are not necessarily those of SHFM or any of its members.